Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Are you okay? Well, last week I wasn't feeling so great. And I think the evidence was shown in the title I gave for the episode. Now, I don't know how early on you got your episode of last week's podcast, but the title I gave it was Books That Make You Go, Hmm. And what I had meant by that was, you know, books that make you go, hmm, these are great books, wonderful books. But somebody said, oh, it sounds like that you know the books may go hmm they're, they're not great books and I just thought oh my goodness yes that is exactly what it sounds like so then I had to hurriedly log back in and change it to the something else and all I could think of was just calling it books 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 because I could think of nothing else under pressure so uh, yes you may have caught a swift name change you may not have but that was what was going on What a week it's been. I am back this week from a meetup for the other podcast I'm involved with, Dumpty Dum, uh, the Archers fandom podcast. And it was amazing to meet everyone and somebody, Jen, you know who you are, uh, who listens to this podcast as well, bought me biscuits from her hometown three packets of biscuits that I had never heard of, never tried before. And I, (laughs) there's a photo with me. And if you'd asked me to open my mouth as wide as possible, you couldn't get it any wider than how it was. I was just so excited and chuffed to get given those biscuits. And then somebody else said, somebody said to me, oh, I can't look at you. I can only hear your voice. So they sort of had to turn away when they were in a conversation with me. Fine. And then somebody else said to me, oh, I thought you were blonde. I found that very interesting. I've never, I, I had red hair once and loved that. I've never gone blonde, never thought of myself as blonde. So, yes, it was a whole revelation, but a glorious one at that. 
guys, I've got some books to talk to you about this week. Most of them I absolutely loved and they're just some standout books that you are yeah, I think you're going to love too. Let me talk you through them. So the first one is that I've mentioned it before, but we've actually got the author coming on this week. So the first one is Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. And Travis is coming on to talk to us about this incredible book. Then we've got Fatal Legacy by Lindsay Davis. And Lindsay is coming on to talk to us about that book. I mean, my goodness, two High profile authors. Unbelievable. Then I'm also reviewing Fox Ash by Kate Worsley. Then I'm reviewing Lies We Sing to the Sea by Sarah Underwood. And finally, I listened to it as I was driving to and from Birmingham this weekend. Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Bazterica. That's quite a book, I have to tell you, particularly when you listen to the audio version. My goodness. Brilliant. But wow quite different. And I also blame Victoria for recommending that book. Yes, thank you, Victoria. Anyway, let's get on. First book, Legends and Lattes, Travis Baldry. Let me just remind you about this wonderful book. On the blurb, it says high fantasy, low stakes with a double shot of coffee. I think that's good. Right, here we go. After decades of adventuring, Viv, the orc barbarian, is hanging up her sword for good. Now she sets her sights on a new dream, opening the first coffee shop in Thune, even though no one there knows what coffee actually is. If Viv wants to realise her plans, she'll need help from unexpected quarters. Yet old rivals and new stand in the way of success, and Thune's shady underbelly could make it all too easy for Viv to take up the blade once more. But the true reward of the uncharted path is the travellers you meet along the way, whether bound by ancient magic, delicious pastries or a freshly brewed cup. They may become something deeper than Viv ever could have imagined. And now to read not the first sentence, because that's the prologue, um, but the first few sentences of chapter one, we've got the author Travis Baldry reading them. And I should say Travis is a professional audiobook narrator. So just wait till you hear his voice. Viv stood in the morning chill, looking down into the broad valley below. The city of Thune bristled up from a bed of fog that hazed the banks of the river bisecting it. Here and there, a copper-clad steeple flashed in the sun. She had broken camp in the pre-dawn dark, and her long legs had eaten up the final few miles. Black blood weighed heavy on her back, the scalvert stone tucked in one of her inner jacket pockets. She could feel it like a hard, withered apple, and reflexively touched it through the cloth from time to time to reassure herself it was still there. A leather satchel hung over one shoulder, stuffed mostly with notes and plans, a few chunks of hardtack, a purse of platinum chits, and assorted precious stones, and one small curious device. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a voice, isn't it? One not to forget. Amazing, amazing voice, amazing book. I love this book so much. It's one of those that you want, you might lend to people, but then you want to get back immediately. It's not a book you don't want to be on your bookshelf. I, I loved it so much. Listen, I didn't think I was into fantasy books, but I read this and I am, and it's glorious. It's utterly beguiling. It really is. And enough of me just sort of waffling. <laughs> about this amazing book. Let's hear from Travis now. 
Well, it is my hugest of huge pleasures to welcome today Travis Baldry, whose amazing book is Legends and Lattes. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is so good to have you here to talk about this amazing book. Now, I didn't think I even liked fantasy books until I read your book and suddenly it's opened up a whole new, <laughs> whole new world to me. It's just extraordinary. Let's start with the, the real basics. Can you just summarize this glorious book for us? Uh, Legends and Lattes is about uh, an orc mercenary in her 40s who's lived a life of adventure and decides to retire and open up a coffee shop in a city that has never heard of coffee before. <laughs> and, that, and that's it. That's all you need to know. Absolutely fantastic. Now, let's let's deal with the title. Some people have been referring to it as cozy fantasy. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you are happy with or does it secretly just wind you up a little bit? No, I think that's great. I think that's great. Um, when I initially decided on the idea of the book or or to write it all, it was like, you know, I, I really just want to read like a Hallmark movie set in a fantasy world. I just want something nice, you know, that isn't about, where, no, where nobody has to die and the drama isn't based around you know, whether someone is going to survive um, or whether the world is going to survive. And that just sounded nice to me. So I'm absolutely fine with that moniker. I think it's existed for a long time in lots of different forms. You know, I think Perry Pratchett is kind of like, in a lot of ways, you know, the father of a lot of this and things like Howl's Moving Castle, Diane Wynne Jones, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have no objections. Good. Well, that that's good to know. Now, it's a very interesting story how this book came about, because my understanding is you were narrating other books and you thought, well, you wanted to write a book, but there was a there was a gap in the fantasy market. I probably didn't think too much about the market at the time. I mostly just wanted something that I didn't get to read. So as a narrator, you get kind of typecast in a lot of ways. I read a lot of action, adventure, fantasy, science fiction stuff, high stakes. But I really, really like, like, cozy mysteries and fantasy romance. And, and I get them very rarely. There's not a lot of protagonists that have my voice or narrators that people look for to read those kinds of books. So I very seldom get to read them. But when I do, they're kind of like chicken soup. They're these very satisfying, you know, they have like a small cast you get to know and you feel good after you read them. And I was wanting something like that. I wrote the book for National Novel Writing Month in 2021, um, in November. And I tried to do this many times before and always failed. And this is just the first book that I actually finished. And, and of course, that's the middle of COVID, right? Everybody's, nobody's going out anywhere. Nobody's in coffee shops. Um, and nobody's seeing other people face to face. So in a lot of ways, it's, you know, escapist fantasy for the COVID era. <laughs> And when you decided to publish it, you published it yourself. You didn't yeah. go to any of the main publishing groups. Yeah, I had no expectations. Um, and as a narrator uh, of audiobooks, I work with lots of authors, and a lot of them self-publish or go through small presses. And I have a background in software engineering and games development and lots of other weird vaguely intersectional industries. And I like to learn stuff. So I thought, I finished the thing. Why don't I just publish it? I'll see what they go through. I'll see the process and see how the other half lives. And it'll be fun to learn. And by God, I finished a book, finally. I might as well make it so that I can guilt my family members into getting a copy. Um, so, so I went ahead and did that. And 
it went, I mean, it just exploded, really. I mean, your book is everywhere. I can't go on BookTok, BookTube, Bookstagram without it, it, people raving about it. Was it overwhelming? Very, very, very surprising. And it's been, you know, it's been over a year since I released it. And here I am sitting on a podcast still talking about the book and people are still someone sent me an email this morning uh she's in musical theater and was taking a lyric writing course and had wrote us had written a song for that was all based on legends and lattes and sent me the lyrics to it and wanted background on another character i mean stuff weird stuff like that happens to me really frequently now and it's very humbling because i don't I don't feel like I set out to do it, and I feel like I just happen to be at some intersection of, you know, time and need and audience, and it's, it's just, it's very amazing and very humbling, and I'm very grateful to even be remotely associated. And you've even had Lego packs made of the coffee shop. Yeah, someone made a custom Lego set and sent it to me, and it had beautiful instructions and custom parts, and it had the, the little minifigs for the characters, and it's... People have sent me pictures of their tattoos. I, it's just really kind of mind-blowing. And you've got the next book coming out. But before we talk about that, let's just talk about this book in, in a bit more detail. So we've got Viv, this wonderful character. How did she come to you? Um, well, in retrospect, she's largely me. <laughs> oh. So I, um, I spent decades being a game developer. Um, I engineering, making games, I was really good at it. Um, and I did it into my forties. And at some point I discovered that I didn't really want to do that anymore. I wanted to do a different industry. So I became an audiobook narrator and I, I changed course completely in my forties to a totally different industry that, you know, I had not spent any time in my life thinking about and discovered that there was this community of people that I didn't know existed and that were amazing and that made me feel really welcome. And it was just this big, it was this big change in my life. And it kind of like a scary time of life when you feel like, oh, there's the inertia of what you've done before. And so here's Viv and she's in her 40s and she's been doing something her entire life and she's really good at it. But she wants to change to a different, you know, industry. And then she does so and discovers a community of people that's very welcoming that she didn't know existed. So there's all these parallels that I didn't really know were there <laughs> until I got going. Um, and so yeah, I feel I feel I feel very similar to Viv. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great deal of coffee, drinks, and pastries as mm -hmm. well. Did you have to do extensive research for that? I, I don't think I extensively researched anything. I did, for instance, uh, one of my beta readers was you know was a barista at one point. So he you know I made sure that you know coffee there were not like things procedural in the coffee making that weren't wrong. And you know I got some I got a few pointers, for instance, on cinnamon rolls that they have to you know the double prove and and things like that but I, I didn't i didn't research extensively but i did have really helpful beta readers and at the time again it's COVID. i was watching a lot of the uh the great british bake-off <laughs> and um uh fixer upper also so there's a lot of like home improvement and uh and baking <laughs> in the book <laughs> and yet there are also you know twists and um, the the thrilling side to it, you know, we're really rooting for Viv and what is thrown her way. It's not it's not all, um, 
you know, baking pastries and, and drinking coffee. There are some real perils thrown mm -hmm. her way. Was it hard to put her or yourself through those? I mean, I I wanted her to be challenged. I don't want I didn't want like a lack of drama. Um, and I, again, I read a whole lot of action adventure fantasy. So I think when I write, I still write structurally very similar to that. They're kind of brief, snappy chapters where something happens. Something has changed by the end of the chapter. Um, um, but I knew at the outset that I didn't want anything to pass the first sentence. I didn't want anything to get hurt. I didn't want it to be about physical peril. So it had to be about what kind of, what are the sort of dramas that we experience as like normal people who don't kill people for a living, <laughs> you know, which is like starting a new business. It's kind of scary, you know, um, relying on people you've never met before is kind of scary. You know, relationships are kind of scary. Taking a friendship and turning it into something else is scary. So ultimately the book is about little acts of bravery that have nothing to do with swinging a sword, but that everybody could theoretically relate to, um, which are the things that actually make up our lives. So... And what I loved as well, some of the characters, or one in particular, Cal, is a fairly quiet character and yet is so important for the story and all that he does. And in the audio book, the way you narrate it, you you really, that, hmm, I mean, I can't do it like you can. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. He's got a very expressive hmm. Yeah, yes. And I I love that. There isn't a character that I wasn't there to read about and learn about i'm glad i'm glad i like it when every character feels like they could have their own story in a book that nobody's a support character with no other point so when you finished writing did the characters stay in your head have you had any of them really talking away to you i mean i kind of knew their voices from the get-go which is part of an one of the advantages of being an audiobook narrator is that i think audibly at this point i know what my voice does i know what i sound like and i know what things sound like so I have, I have a pretty locked-in audio version of everyone pretty immediately, which is really helpful, especially if you're going to narrate it later, but also just while you're writing. But when you've finished writing the book and finished narrating it, does something ever happen to you and you think, oh, I wonder how Viv would re react to that or Viv would react in that way? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I've thought about it in those terms. I definitely was thinking about them and how they might show up in other places and other things they might do. But I kept a lot of it sort of walled off because I liked that I liked how things turned out for Viv. And I was like, I'm not ready for you to be plunged back into any more uncertainty right now. I think you've earned your retirement. So I kind of kept her heart partitioned off, which is we'll get to the second book. But ultimately, that's why it's a prequel. Yeah. <laughs> so that she can still be where we've left her. So she can still be. And it dovetails. And there's a certain amount of like further resolution to the to the original book. But yeah, I wanted to talk about I didn't want to unseat her. Yeah. And, and as a reader, I appreciate that. And looking at some of the special editions of your book. They're beautiful books with all these sprayed edges. It's really neat. And that, that seems to be, I mean, I, I was not actually not aware to the extent that that happened because it's such a huge thing in the UK. I think it's less so in the US. They do have, you know, boxes here and special editions, but they don't make quite the level of fancy hardbacks that they do in the UK. So when I get one of those in the mail, I'm I'm pretty tickled. Oh, that's interesting. I thought they were just as big in the mm -hmm. U.S. So. so there's no hardback versions at all in the U.S. of the original book. It went straight to... I, I That's not true. There's one copy that I made right before. Um, but uh, 
it went straight to trade paperback. And even the special editions are trade paperbacks here in the U.S. So that may that may change. But, you know, I have I don't know how many hardback versions I have from the U.K. I feel like I have like five different ones, you know. Um, but yeah, none in the U.S. And in terms of merchandise, because I started Googling thinking, please let there be some merch that I can get my hands on. There is substantial amounts of merchandise. I mean, on your website, you can get mugs and T-shirts and all sorts of things. So the merch I just did because people kept asking me for it. People would like a mug or a sticker or whatever. And for a while I had, uh, I think I would just send a link to like Zazzle where people could, here's, here's some of the art that I commissioned that I have the rights to. And you can make a mug if you want. But it got, it honestly, it just got too annoying. <laughs> so I found um, a site called Printful that lets you kind of manage all of those things and just set them up so that people could get them if they wanted them. It was, it was just been kind of funny. And people still, people still get stickers and stuff. I just try to make it so that I'm not underwater and it doesn't cost me for them to be sent out. <laughs> well, that's, that's fair enough. When I interview some authors who have been primarily, well, they're very into their movies. When they write, they see the book as they're writing, whereas other authors, particularly those that grew mm-hmm. up just with the radio, say, and not the television, they don't see mm-hmm. it as they're writing, they hear it. And I was interested for you with your, mm-hmm. the different experiences that you've had, the video working video games and then audiobook narration. Mm-hmm. When you're writing, are you seeing it or hearing it? Both. So I have a very clear mental image. Again, this is like a rewiring that I think happens in your brain as a narrator. Everything about dialogue in books, when you're narrating, for me, depends upon proximity and posture, right? Am I speaking to somebody who's coming down the stairs? Am I speaking to someone who's sitting across the table from me? How does our proximity and our posture and our demeanor affect how we talk? So having the, the images of that in my head are just like really, really, really important because everything about how you deliver it is dependent on that. So I think very movie-like. I think very much in shots, actually. And I discovered during editing that there's a lot of like unnecessary language that tends to carry over when you think in a shot-based way because we're used to like this visual language of film where people are doing an action in conjunction with saying something they're turning or they're looking up at somebody. There's some action that adds a little bit to convey things that maybe get conveyed in prose in a book. And so we reflexively add those. And then you find out that you've got too many and you have to go back and weed them out because you don't need to, you know, articulate every turn of the head or whatever else that you would do if you were storyboarding this. So I very much see this stuff. But at the same time, I also have a, I have an overdub of my own voice saying what's going on because I'm used to hearing my voice in my head before I say the words when I narrate. It's useful, but it's also a little bit, it's, 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 it's very, it's, it's kind of very specific. <laughs> yes. So does that help you focus on your writing or does that make it harder? For me, I think it means that I, I like it. I think it's actually kind of like a weird superpower is that what I put on the page generally is something that I would like to say out loud because I've already heard it. You know, when people talk about the, some of the best editing advice that they have is that you should read your work out loud. Very common among authors because you discover that your dialogue doesn't ring true or that this sentence is too cumbersome or that these words next to each other are very just challenging to say. And a lot of that translates to the reader and makes the book easier to read if it's easier to narrate out loud. Well, I'm already doing that. So I've got like a, I've got a first pass shortcut on that. That doesn't mean that I don't have stuff to edit, but I find, especially having written before I narrated, that what I put on the page is much closer to what I ultimately want to be there than it used to be. 
And were there any fundamental changes in the story when you came to edit it? Was there anything that we don't know about? Very little changed, oddly. Um, I believe in the edit, uh, I took out about 2,000 words and added about 2,000 words back. Um, some of it was just puffery, and but I there were like about, I think, three minor scenes that were added throughout and probably a implied conversation that was expanded between Viv and Tandry um, there was a little bit added just to have Cal show up in the middle of the book to make sure that you were reminded that he was there. He just had, was a little bit of involvement and I think like a minor conversation with Lainey, but largely the book is the book that I wrote. Um, editing was mostly about tightening things up, making sure of continuity, you know, tuning language and removing crap, removing puffy stuff. I outlined this and it also almost totally follows the outline. Um, this is the first book I ever outlined. I always tried to not outline before. I was sure I was a pantser, and I'm not. I have to outline. But I outline in a way that's basically writing the book in a short form. So if you read the outline, it reads like the book. It's just much, much briefer. It's like a verbal telling. There wasn't a big scene change. No, there was nothing. Um, I mean, I, I, so I was still surprised by things when I wrote it. But that happened during the writing. I would discover that. So initially, for instance, uh, Viv and Tendry were just going to be very good friends. It was just going to be uh, an example of an incredibly supportive friends relationship where two people who discovered that they shored up things that the other one needed. And it about halfway through, I was like, you know what, that's going to be a little bit more than that. And that will be Viv's last act of bravery is to take a relationship that she values and risk risk hurting it to become something more. And so I, I discovered that. And, and what a story that is. Now, let's just mention the next book, because uh, you have this prequel okay. coming out, Bookshops and Bone Dust. I mean, I thought, you know, a coffee shop, you couldn't get better than that. But you have just raised it <laughs> to a bookshop. <laughs> what can you tell us? So Bookshops and Bone Dust is set about 20 years before Legends and Lattes, Viv is young. She's at the start of her adventuring career. She's still pretty headstrong. And she is with a mercenary group called Rackham's Ravens. She's very junior. She's been with them for a few months. And they're out hunting down this necromancer. And she gets wounded. And they dump her off in a crappy beach town while they go on without her. And they'll come back and pick her up when, she's, when they're done and when she's hopefully, you know, able to stagger around. Um, so she's annoyed and thwarted and um, immediately runs afoul of, like, the law. And then she starts this friendship with the really foul-mouthed owner of a local struggling bookshop. And uh, the book is largely about, like, the little seeds that get planted very early in life that we don't know how they're going to bloom, and then they change us fundamentally later. And we look back and we're like, God, I'm amazed. That is what was the... You know, this was the fulcrum upon which my, my, my life turned. And it's also about stories. So it's where Viv learns to like reading. She's a reader in Legends and Lattes already, but she was not at the start of this book. And it's about how stories let us see other people in a way that nothing else really does. That, you know, when we recognize ourselves in a story that someone else wrote, there's this moment of connection where we, we get each other this little clarity of, of, of vision and how we use stories to get to know each other. I don't know. It's, um, I, it was not the book I set out to write at all. <laughs> I actually was going to write a totally different book. So this is actually the, the fourth attempt at oh, the wow. second book. 
but it was the one that I that stuck. It was the one that I discovered I wanted to write. Uh, and it will be out in November this year. November's seventh in the US, ninth in the UK. Now we come to the last question. And okay, you're a, a global book star and all of that, but this is the most important question on this podcast, I'm afraid, Travis. What biscuit was powering the writing of Legends and Lattes? <laughs> what is your biscuit of choice? Oh wow. This is this is actually very hard. What biscuit? Um my answer is just so terrible. It should be a delicious baked good. It should be a cinnamon roll or a biscotti or something, but it's not. It's not. It's a protein bar. It's a not particularly tasty protein bar from Costco. <laughs> Gosh, well, it's an amazing book, so we'll allow you that. I will say that after the book was written, there's a, a baker named Rudy Rossignol who, who has a website called Fantasy Cookery, and she extrapolated the recipe for thimblets, which are the basically the biscotti that Thimble makes in the book. And then we made them, and they're amazing. And we ate, like, the entire batch within <laughs> under 24 hours. So if I'm allowed to be retroactive, then I would say that. We'll allow that. It certainly sounds better than a protein bar. But if it got you through it... It <laughs> certainly does. It was better. It was infinitely better. <laughs> There's a reason you didn't include protein bars in the actual book, then. <laughs> 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 absolutely <laughs> well it's just been the hugest pleasure to talk to you it really has travis baldry whose fabulous book is legends and lattes thank you so much thank you so much coming up one more author interview and more book reviews if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now let's go straight on to the next book, shall we? And what a book this is. I mean, the name Lindsay Davis is so well known in the, the world of fiction, sort of historical fiction particularly, and I was really keen to read this book and talk to Lindsay. So the latest one is called Fatal Legacy, uh, and let me read you the blurb on this one. An unpaid bar bill leads Flavia Albia to her most bitter and complex case yet. Decades earlier... <laughs> now, decades earlier, I've got to read this person's name... I know I'm going to do it badly. Let's see how Philippa copes with this. Apologies to anyone who actually knows what they're doing listening to this. This is going to make your teeth grind. But anyway, decades earlier, Appius Tranquillosurus wrote his will. It freed his slaves and bequeathed his businesses to them. He left an orchard to the Prissy, a family he was friendly with, on the condition that his freed men could still take its harvest. The convoluted arrangement has led to a feud between the two families, each of which has its own internal strife. Endless claims and counterclaims have led to violence and even death. Lawyers have given up in exasperation, but the case limps on. The original will has disappeared, along with a falsified codicil, and might there be another one? But there could be a solution. Two youngsters from each side of the divide, Gaius Venilius and Cosca Sabatina, have fallen in love, which could finally unite the feuding families. There is only one problem. Were Sabatina's grandmother and father really liberated in the Cirrus will? If not, the stigma of slavery will stop the marriage and the dispute will rage on forever. Reconciliation seems impossible, but Albia will try. Her investigation must cut through decades of secrets, arguments, lies and violence to reach a startling truth. And let's have Lindsay read that first sentence now. Apollonius and Junilus had let the pair who came on that particular day have an inside table. Perhaps the lovers had deliberately chosen an empty cowpona so they could smooch in private. They certainly hadn't come for the ambience or conversation. They allowed themselves to be fobbed off with rubbery eggs and they poured their own nips from a very small flagon. Given the poor menu, they stayed quite a long time. When they wanted to leave, they stood up, slid into their cloaks, then waved their bill at the busy waiters to indicate agreement in the traditional way. No need to come over, we are leaving the money on the table. Junilus, being deaf, only noticed the gesture. Apollonius heard the clink of what he assumed to be coins rattling into the pottery saucer. But when he went to pick up the money, it was the old scam. Three metal rivets. Oh my goodness, I love it so much having the authors read from their book. First of all, in this instance, it's particularly helpful because then you actually get the words pronounced correctly, whereas I failed dismally. But also... I just think it adds something extra. I really do. It's a fabulous historical book. So many layers. 
uh, and really interesting characters. But enough about me waffling on about it. We need to just talk to Lindsay now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome today Lindsay Davis, whose latest fabulous book is Fatal Legacy. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Let's start with the real basics, though. The first question is, can you summarise this wonderful book for us? (laughs) Um, Not easily. (laughs) This is a book that begins with a simple idea and then through what appear each time to be fairly simple discoveries, it becomes a huge Baroque structure of a family in turmoil Um, It's a kind of soap opera in a book. And in the end, it does all join together. But along the way, I have advised my readers not to try to follow the plot because it is so convoluted. (laughs) I think it's the first time I've actually said to them, just let it wash over you. Um, It's inquiring into uh, a rather Roman thing, which is the position of slaves in Roman society, which... It's one of the things that we don't have, obviously. I've done it before in different ways, but in this case, I'm looking at what would happen if someone who thought they were free wasn't, in fact, and what would be the situation for them and also for their relatives. And it's rather tragic in that sense, but along the way, we get a lot of laughs. (laughs) And this character, Flavia, uh, well, I'll pronounce her name Flavia Albia. That's probably entirely the wrong way of pronouncing it. How would you pronounce it? She would say, don't call me Flavia, because she does quite often. (laughs) (laughs) I call her Albia most of the time. Oh, she's quite a character. How has she developed for you? She started in one of my previous series, the Falco series. She was just in the background on an occasion when Falco and his wife and family were in London visiting relatives. And there's skullduggery going on in Roman London. And and in the street, they see this little scavenging person who seems to be fond of dogs, which attracted her to me. And she was only meant to be a bit of the background, showing that the streets of Rome and London had disadvantages and, and unfortunate characters. But they get drawn in, and it ends up that Falco's wife, Helena, a good woman in every sense, decides she's got to rescue this child. And even then, she was just going to be an example of how Helena is a good woman, really. But they bring her back to Rome, and then she's there in their house. So I gradually started writing about her. And when the time came that I had, I felt I'd written enough Falco and Helena books and I wanted something new, but my publisher still wanted something Roman, Albia cropped up as a possibility. So she has become a kind of Roman detective in the same way that her adoptive father Falco was. I think when I started 20 years before, maybe more than 20 years ago, People's knowledge of the Roman world was much less in those days. And it would have been difficult for me to take this situation of a working woman, um, which is very odd in Rome. It was one step too far when I started. But now we've, we've got more used to Roman stuff in every way, especially through TV and film, but also archaeology. And, and I felt I could, I could explore how it would be if you were a woman in Roman society, in her case, also an outsider, of course, because she has. Specifically, she's come from Britain. 
So it, it was good for me because I was using my familiar territory. I set it about 12 years after the end of the Falco series, so she's had time to grow up. But then with her, I'm looking at the Roman world from the outsider's point of view and from the point of view of women. And once she finds her true love, Tiberius, I'm also looking at how a middle-class or lower-class family unit worked. We know a lot about the aristocracy, but we know much less about people who had building firms and who did jobs as Albia does and how they made their way. So how are you doing your research? Because it sounds like it's very... There's a lot of technical research that you then translate into this fantastic story. Yes, my my job is to make this accessible for people who maybe don't know anything but or who may know little or who may have been taught about the Roman world 70 years ago and they think they know, but we have actually discovered a whole lot more and it's changed. I have a bit of trouble with people saying, I'm sure I was told so-and-so, and I, I know that the, there are new discoveries since then. I like doing it. I like, I like the research, and I think that's very important, that my joy in doing it comes through and other people are going to think, oh, that's really exciting, I didn't know that. Of course, it's fiction, so you only have to do what you want to do with fiction. It's not as if you've got to do everything that is... I was brought up academically to always explore everything you can get your hands on. There's not a lot about Roman women because most of what survived of Roman writing is written by Roman men, and uh, that, that makes it harder. So when you're writing, I'm interested, which voices are talking to you the loudest? Are they the fictional characters from your books or the non-fiction people that you might have come across? Oh, the fictional characters, the not fictional ones. I delve into non-fiction, look at what I want, and then set it to one side and go back to my own my own people. And I'm interested myself that you say which voices because I grew up in the radio age. We we didn't even have a TV until I was fourteen. Can you believe that? And we didn't often go to the pictures. So I hear my writing in my head. I think there are many younger authors who see it as if it was on a film screen, but I'm not like that. Yes, that's so interesting because, yes, you're absolutely right and that's what you grew up on, so that that's how you would write. I have to force myself to describe what people look like because mm. I'm I'm hearing them and so I know what they, they're like, but then I have to remember in a novel... You must say whether they're tall or short. Or... And in terms of sort of um, the teaching of Romans, I mean, when I was at school, we were dragged around Roxeter once a year and made to colour in a centurion picture. And, and that was it. You know, it just shows. Whereas your books really, even though they're fiction, I learned so much more from them than I would do from my bland colouring in. Yes, we are, we're very fortunate can't avoid the fact that Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried Pompeii and Herculaneum and we've got a snapshot of a particular day in the Roman period and it's the period I'm writing about moreover so that's even better. Um, there, it, I have tried to write historical novels set in other periods and you, you just don't have that. You have, to, you have to find other ways to research it. 
But we know what life in the streets and in people's houses was like. And I, I think it is part of my job to bring it alive. And, and not also not to show it as the old traditional view that the ancient Roman world was just white columned temples on the tops of hills. Because for one thing, we now know they weren't white, they were painted. <laughs> the boys' school classical approach, I think, was to look up to the elite. And my approach is to start in the streets. And if we meet the elite, they're just there to be sneered at most of the time. <laughs> and how do you manage the pace and the tension when you're writing? I don't know. It's It just, just comes of its own accord, really. If I feel I've written a very long chapter, I'll write a very short one. And my shortest chapters was... There's one that's just a word in one of the Falco novels. And there's also, since then, the challenge was obviously put to me. And there is one somewhere can't even remember where that's just a piece of punctuation I think it's an exclamation mark but it might be a question mark this is another aspect of what I'm doing because perhaps because I grew up with the radio I I feel perfectly free to do whatever I like and I have all sorts of things going on at the same time so we have the basic story but we also have my jokes with my readers from me and they know it's me they know it's not Falco or Albia speaking so so things like that can go on and when you're writing a series, how do you decide how much to put in one book? Because there must be ideas that you think, oh, well, I'll leave that for the next one. Yes, it's always very tempting if you get a good idea. But I, I very much like working up to things happening and brewing over them myself. So with Albia, we've got a long running story that when she was in Britain, she was she fell into the hands of a really horrible gangster who, who actually was going to put her in a brothel and who raped her, in fact. There's that, will she meet him again? And if so, will she get the better of him story going on? My, my next book, though, will it be the end of the story or will he get away and will then have an, another one? So I, I enjoyed that. And I think my natural writing length is quite leisurely. So I like developing characters we know and places we know as well. Because there are, there are places that were in the Falco stories that have now fallen down or been redesigned. Uh, and that interests me very much. You're so well known as an author. I can see that that's a huge blessing, but also does it restrict your writing? You know, you are restricted to a particular genre. You, I can't imagine you're writing many horror graphic novels. I'm, I'm not a person who does what people tell them to do. <laughs> no, I actually didn't want to write about the Roman period. That came because I couldn't get published and I had to try something new. I wanted to write about the English Civil War and for a long time I wasn't allowed to. Nobody would buy anything I wrote in that period. And then in the end I wrote an absolutely massive book in case I was never allowed to write another one. Um so I've got that out of my system. And now I take the line, it was a Terry Pratchett thing. He said, never accept ideas from other people because they might then come back at you and try and claim copyright. So if, if other people tell me what they think I could write, I won't say should write because mostly now they're too sensible to bully me. But I, I just say, I'm terribly sorry, I, I can't do that. Or that, I just 
haven't decided myself what's going to happen next, which is a lovely position to be. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. Yes. And you've got a lot of loyal readers. Do you, are there long queues at book events of people waiting to meet you? Um, I, I wouldn't say that because, for one thing, of course, we're just picking up again after lockdown. So I, I'm not doing very many book events. And I am a lot older, so they're quite hard work, the travel and, and physically doing them is quite hard work. What I am very proud of is that during lockdown, in order to try and somehow get in touch with readers, I started a little group where I read to them because people were in such terrible distress when they were locked in their houses. And I I discovered that even adults like being read to. So once a month I read for an hour to a a core group. There's, There's almost 50 of them sometimes more than 50 and they come and they just sit there in their houses some have a drink some have their cat and I just read to them and do it the way listen with mother when I was a very small child you're too young to know about this they had this little tiny program in the middle of the day called listen with mother when mothers and their children got together and listened to the radio and it always began are you sitting comfortably then I'll begin. And I have to say that if I don't say it, that my reading group tell me off. Radio 4 was a big part of my upbringing. Uh, you know, my mother would always have on the afternoon play and got me hooked on the archers. And uh, well, yeah. one, one of my best friends was the long running scriptwriter of the archers, which is interesting because we both ended up in different ways writing huge soap operas. You mentioned the Radio 4 plays. I think they were at the back of my starting to write detective stories because they they used to do really good detective stories. And that's also is probably one of the reasons why Falco was in the first person and Albier is too. Um, because they usually had or often had a, a voiceover from the detective himself before they went into the drama scenes. And I just did that. I didn't think about it at all. I just did it because that was what I knew. And when you're not writing, are the characters sort of squabbling in your head and talking to you? Not as much as they did when I was younger and more insecure. Now I think it's my job and I can put them in the drawer when I leave the room. But I do I do go on mulling. <laughs> I'm, I've got interested in this, where where your actual writing comes from. And for me, some of it happens when I... Um, not getting up in the morning because I take a very long time to actually rouse myself and go through ablutions and getting dressed and all of that stuff you have to do. And I have realised that while I'm doing that, sometimes I just get back into bed and lie there and I'm thinking about the next chapter without even consciously planning to do so. And, and processing is, is a good word because you don't just sit and you write a sentence, but you have to think of different ways you could do it, or in my case, how you could make jokes out of it and make it more interesting. Oh, lovely. Great. It, I'm just wondering, if you could go back to when you were writing your first book, what would you sort of whisper in your ear? What would you do differently? There's only one thing I think was a mistake, and... Um, the very first book I wrote wasn't even in the series. It's called The Course of Honour and it's about um, the Emperor Vespasian and his mistress. And I, I think it's one of my best. So that I would not 
very much change, except I've discovered where she came from. She, she was a slave, and I do now know where she came from, and I would put that in. But that's, that's not so much a mistake as adding something. But then I wrote my first Falco novel, and I had no idea. I just started on page one, um, and I didn't know who was going to die or who was going to kill them. And about a third of the way through, I thought, oh, I better kill somebody. So I killed a really nice young girl. Um, and I don't regret that because it's a shock and it works. But I introduced as the love interest Helena, who I've already mentioned. And one of the things I wanted to show about her was that she was very feisty and self-determined. And so she has divorced her first husband, which Roman people could do. All you had to do, actually, was leave home and you were divorced. So Helena has divorced her first husband and we meet him and he's fairly horrible. And you can see why she divorced him. And so without thinking too much about it, I killed him off. And then when Falco has fallen for Helena and she for him, he is well-placed to have enormous comic jealousy of this first husband, but I killed him. So I had to do a kind of, was it a dream, I'm in the shower, and I suddenly realised he wasn't dead, reconstruction of this husband, and then kill him again. And I, I personally would not do the fake death of Pertinax, Helena's first husband. Um, but that, that, I think, is the only big regret I have. And it's a, it's a technical thing, really. I'd like to think I can do better than that. <laughs> now we come to the, what is the most important and crucial question on this podcast, Lindsay. So prepare yourself. When you were writing Fatal Legacy, what biscuit was powering the words? What is your biscuit of choice? My, my biscuit of choice is a cracker to go with cheese. I don't have a very sweet tooth. So it would be any anything you can put cheese on. <laughs> and are you eating those literally as you're writing or do you allow yourself breaks? And I will confess to you that I did have cheese and bix before we started the podcast and it is only 10 o'clock. So <laughs> I could show you the plate, but as the podcast hasn't got visuals, there's no point. What else would I have? Um Anything with chocolate would probably lure me to the kitchen to get it, but that's that's not something I regularly do. It's only if they happen to be there, they've got to be eaten, haven't they? Uh, absolutely. It would be a crime not to. It's just been so interesting to talk to you and hear more about the writing and these glorious books. I'm just so grateful for you coming on. Lindsay Davis, whose latest fabulous book is Fatal Legacy. Thank you so much. Thank you. But don't go away now because I have still got some very interesting books to talk to you about. And the next one, wow, Fox Ash by Kate Worsley. And the blurb on the front is by Sarah Waters. Wonderfully atmospheric. Worsley's fiction is something to savour. Oh, yeah. OK, let me read you the blurb first. Worn out by poverty, Letty Radley and her minor husband, Tommy, grasp at the offer of their very own small holding. Part of a government scheme to put the unemployed back to work on the land. When she comes down to Essex to join him, it's not Tommy who greets her, but their new neighbours. 
Overbearing and unkempt, Jean and Adam Dell are everything that the smart, spirited, aspirational Letty can't abide. As Letty settles in, she finds unexpected joy in the rhythms of life on the small holding. She's hopeful that her past and the terrible secret Tommy has come to Fox Ash to escape are far behind them. But the Dells have their own secrets. And as the seasons change and a man comes knocking at the gate, the scene is set for a terrible reckoning. Okay, let's do first sentences on this. 28th of January. I thought he'd be here to meet me. I had it all crystal clear in my head. Letter said to come down 28th of January. Ticket was a single, same as his. Caught the 10 to 8 main line, same as he had three months back. I pictured him that day, arriving here about tea time with the rest of the men from the special areas, cold, hungry, tired, piling into an association truck in a fog of white breath. All those nights since I've conjured him up, stood here waiting on me. I'm not after a truck, just my Tommy. So I started this book and I thought, oh, it's all written in the first person. I'm not sure. Struggle, struggle. Woe is me. And then I had a word with myself and said, Philippa, when you heard about this book, you loved how it sounded. So pull on your big girl's pants and start reading it properly. Read it properly, I did. And listener, let me tell you, I flipping love this book. It's incredible. It's the sort of book that stays with you, sort of book that you keep on your bookshelves. I thought it was, uh, oh, it had everything in it, this sort of stifling confinement, the uncertainty and unease, unease about what's going on. There is something that happens... Uh, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but there is something that happens sort of in a sort of a hat department. I won't say anything more. And I actually went, oh, and my husband said, are you all right? And I went, yes, oh my goodness, this has just happened in the book. Yeah, it's very, very, very good. Kate Worsley, bravo. This is an exceptional book. So if you like things that are sort of, unsettling and different and you know it takes time to unravel but it's absolutely a glorious 10 out of 10 then fox ash is is the one for you so there we go now the next book i'm going to tell you about is tender is the flesh and this book is by augustina basterica and i'd heard about this book on the what victoria read channel on YouTube I'd settled down to watch a video because she was doing one on food not like cooking books but I think primarily fiction books that are have some relevance to food and she mentioned this book and to give her credit she did say how sort of amazing a book it is but how disgusting and horrific it is and she's right but I thought well I've got to drive to and fro from Birmingham for a few days I need a book that's going to keep me gripped. And I have realised that a lot of audiobooks don't keep me gripped. Listen, I've got ADHD and my brain does sometimes think about many, many different things at the same time while driving and obviously focusing safely on the road. And so I do need an audiobook that really maybe is so horrific that my eyes are so wide listening to it that it keeps me gripped. And this book certainly delivered. Let me read you the blurb first of all. And prepare yourselves, because this is dystopian horrificness. There's a, there's a new genre for you. 
Um, Marcos is in the business of slaughtering humans. Only no one calls them that. He works with numbers, consignments, processing. One day he's given a specimen of the finest quality. He leaves her tied up in an outhouse, a problem to be disposed of later. But she haunts Marcus. Her trembling body and watchful gaze seem to understand. And soon he becomes tortured by what has been lost and what might still be saved. OK, let's let's read you the first few sentences of this book. Oh, yes, I don't. Right. OK, come on, Philippa, just read this. Having listened to the whole book, this, this does have some significance. Anyway, OK, here we go. Prepare yourselves. Carcass, cut in half, stunner, slaughter line, spray wash. These words appear in his head and strike him, destroy him. But they're not just words. They're the blood, the dense smell, the automation, the absence of thought. They burst in on the night, catch him off guard. When he wakes, his body is covered in a film of sweat because he knows that what awaits is another day of slaughtering humans. So the premise of this book is that it is based in a time when there has been a horrific pandemic and that it's been carried by animals. And so the, the, the world, the government have had to take the extreme step of getting rid of all animals. So there goes your meat supply. And over time, they decide that the best thing, forget being vegan, Let's slaughter humans and eat them. The book is very graphic in what happens. And if you'd said to me, oh, it's really graphic and all of that, I just said, thank you, but no thank you. But you know what? I am so glad I listened to it. It's the narration is absolutely superb. I thought it was really good, added a lot to it. It was quite short. I mean, I listened at speed of 1.4 and I think it's about six hours, something like that. I thought it was mesmerising. It's a book that's made me talk to other people and people say, oh, what have you been listening to? Let me tell you about this book. So it's certainly one to talk about. And it, I never thought I'd say a book is both brilliant and horrific at the same time. But what I mean is it's brilliant in the story and the way it's written and the characters and how it draws you in. And it's horrific because the, the the what happens in the story is just oh awful. So yes, not one to listen to with children, not one if you're feeling squeamish, but if you want something that you just can't go off into your own thoughts and forget the story, but one that you're just listening to, wondering what's going to happen, then I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. Absolutely excellent. Just don't eat before you listen to it. So there we go. That's that one. Now, last book. Lies We Sing to the Sea by Sarah Underwood. So I was coming off the back of Legends and Lattes and thinking, OK, fantasy is my new genre. Brilliant. Let's let's have it. And so I got this book. And mm, OK, let me do the blurb. In the cursed kingdom of Ithaca, each summer brings the hanging of twelve maidens, a gift to the vengeful Poseidon. For seventeen years, Leto has escaped the curse's mark until now. 
But death does not claim Leto. Instead, she wakes on a mysterious island, greeted by the immortal Melantho. She tells Leto that Ithaca's sacrifices are the legacy of the great Odysseus, payment for the lives of Queen Penelope's twelve maids, cast into the ocean centuries ago. Leto has the chance to break the curse. She just has to kill the prince of Ithaca. But Prince Matthias also seeks to free his kingdom from the curse. Torn by her growing love for both Melantho and Matthias, Leto must choose a path to follow. By breaking the curse, they will save thousands of lives. But if they fail, then the tides of fate will drown them all. And as I read it, that sounds brilliant. And mine is the most beautiful copy, the most incredible sprayed edges. And I started it and I was into it. And then I just lost it. I, I oh, sorry, first sentence too. The first sentence, Philippa, come on, you've been doing this long enough. You should know what you're doing. Chapter one, another feat of gods and heroes, Leto. A silent maid braided Leto's hair into an elaborate crown for her execution. So, yeah, it started off really well. I was really gripped. It felt, everyone says, oh, it feels a bit Handmaid's Tale at the beginning. And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. It's more, that's probably more a scene from the Handmaid's TV series than the book. Anyway, waffling's happening. But it didn't keep me gripped. And I don't know if that's because... I didn't get the opportunity to really read chunks of the book. So it was very bitty and that never helps, does it, to draw you in when you're reading a story. So I don't know if it was that. I don't know if the story just sort of waned a bit. It wasn't a real strong story that really drew me in. I don't know. So if you've read this book, please tell me what you thought, because clearly lots of people love it. So I'm missing a trick. Shame on me. Yeah, I think it's what I'm going to hold on to because not only is it beautiful, I think it might be a book that I will return to and enjoy another time. I don't know. But anyway, it's, yes, it's, it was fine. Uh, but I, yeah, it was one of those that I just wanted to finish and not in a good way, not to find out what happened just so I could get onto another book, which is, yeah, quite a, quite a sad thing. But you can't win them all. And as I say, that was just me, probably caught me at a bad time nothing to do with the author whatsoever. So those are your books. Shall we just have a quick recap on the books we featured today? So we uh, featured Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry and Travis very kindly came on to talk to us about this book. Love that book so much. And then we had Lindsay Davis on to talk about her latest book, Fatal Legacy. It was just fascinating. Absolutely wonderful. Then I reviewed Fox Ash by Kate Worsley. And that is an incredible book as well. And then also I... Uh, reviewed, sorry, lots of errs today. I'm just looking at different screens because when you have an audiobook, you can't just get all the blurb like you can when you've got the printed book. Anyway, then I reviewed for you Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Basterica. And I listened to the audiobook version of that and it was phenomenal. Oh, and I should say I listened to the audiobook version of Legends and Lattes as well. And that's really excellent. Really excellent. That's a very weak way of saying it. It's utterly brilliant. There we go. And the final book I reviewed was Lies We Sing to the Sea by Sarah Underwood. Those are your books. 
that's it for this week. I do hope everything's okay with you. You can find us on Facebook, the QuickBook Reviews podcast group. You'd be very, very welcome to join us there. You always get sneak peeks of the interviews coming the next week. And I just I'm going to send you on your way. Go forth, go read books, go acquire books, go enjoy books. And I can't wait to talk to you again next week. So look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one ever. See you again soon. 365 day returns.